Ray's family is directly responsible for strip mining my world. His father personally ordered the execution of a hundred thousand dawns. But he himself did nothing, am I correct? A technicality! We've taken the liberty of writing your speech for you. I've had experts in psycholinguistics working on it for weeks. It's perfect. Fiery, but dignified. Elegant, but strong. It outlines the decline of our government and our need for change. It also makes a few predictions about what will go wrong next with the economy and the military. These predictions, they will come true. Already arranged. There is something more important than where I die. A message you must give for me. Well, if it's important, perhaps one of your own people should deliver. If I did that, the message might never be delivered. He said, just pick a target. He wanted to say he's sorry. I can explain everything. I'm going to get you a drink. They're doing it to us again. Step aside, Sheridan. I won't let this happen. Not again! Then you're gonna need all the help you can get. This is Chip and Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the 31st episode of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, The Coming of Shadows. This is the moment that I have been waiting for for about, oh, I don't know, 31 episodes. Welcome to B5AG and our look at the 1996 Hugo winning episode of Babylon 5, The Coming of Shadows. Hello, Shannon. Hello, Erica. Hello. And hello, Stephen. Hello. I'm here. Is this is this the moment that you're looking forward to? That it's that I'm on the show again? Is that why you're so excited about this one, Chip? Uh, no, that's Always. one. That's that's one of the things that I'm getting over. Um, but uh, <laughs> we. This is my favorite episode of Babylon Five, probably. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying that right before we get to any of the discussion, before I give anybody a chance to rain on my parade. I, I just. I, I'm excited. I'm happy. I am stammering. This is so great. Um, and I thought that it would be a great time to bring Steven in because this is a real pivot point in the series. And I wanted to see what our control group thought of it. Uh, so thanks for being with us, Steven. Well, thanks for having me on again. I didn't know what to expect when you asked me on, because you asked me on this, uh, this episode before we even saw the, ep- the Babylon 5 episode in question. So I figured it wasn't going to be a middling episode like last week's was, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, you shut up. <laughs> and I haven't even heard your podcast about that because it only came out the morning that we were recording. Ten this, minutes so. ago. Ten minutes ago. <laughs> there we go. So I guess I didn't have a chance. So Marriage takes yeah, time. <laughs> I suppose it does. Anyway, I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. Uh, Shannon and Erica, are you ready for this? I um, I sort of am. This is 
Once again, I think for only the second time since we started doing the podcast, I didn't take notes while I was watching the episode. I just kind of wanted to sit back and enjoy this and watch it unfurl in front of me. And when I when I take notes, I think I think it's maybe a slightly better podcasting experience because I have a bunch of stuff to refer to and my brain works better that way. But when I don't take notes, for me, it's a, a better viewing experience because I can get all of the nuance and really, you know, when the tension ratchets up, I'm not I'm not interrupting myself by jotting something down. So I, I have no regrets, but if I'm a little bit scattered in, uh, in in what I want to talk about, it's because I don't have words in front of me like I usually do. So let me get this straight, Erica. You sacrificed the podcast in order to enjoy the episode more fully. And then at the outset of the podcast, you informed the podcast listeners that you had sacrificed the podcast. Yes, dear <laughs> listeners, I have thrown you all under the bus. I hope you're comfortable down there. That's marketing. <laughs> I figured, hey, you know, we're going to have Stephen on for the non-spoiler portion. That's one whole extra voice. You know, there's enough to carry this. I'm fine. All right. Shannon, you did take notes, right? I took copious notes. I apologize in advance if the turning of my pages of my notebook rattle anywhere because I will be flipping back and forth. But yes, I, I took notes um, as it was kind of hard to. They're kind of scattershot this time around. I usually manage to get more coherent thoughts down. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. You're not marketing the podcast adequately. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hush. We're Everybody. If not honest. We're marketing the episode. Well, this is true. This episode was just that good. Um, I mean, I agree. This is one of the a wonderful episode. And, you know, as we mentioned, you know, certainly turns things into new directions for the whole show. I'm not sure I'm willing to call it my absolute favorite. There's a couple of episodes in season three that kind of hold that position, I think. But, oh, my God, this one's good. Well, let's see if Stephen shares their assessment and let's actually talk about the bloody thing. So, dear listeners, if it's been a while or if you have just tuned in this time because we've talked up The Coming of Shadows so much, this is what you need to know. Babylon 5 is a united nation in space, yada, yada, yada. Among the governments represented, the Centauri Republic occupied and laid waste to the Narn regime until they were pushed off in a guerrilla war. They really hate each other, and they aren't really down with this whole building the peace thing. A mysterious alien force has made a deal with Centauri Ambassador Lando Malari. We'll lend our muscle to the Centauri in return for an ominous favor to be named later. It's kind of like a draft deal. Meanwhile, Station Captain John Sheridan has been trying to steer the ship, mixed metaphor, since his predecessor, Commander Sinclair, was mysteriously reassigned. So what happens in this episode is too much for explanation, so let us instead sum up. Centauri Emperor travels to B5, secretly planning to apologize to the Narn. Narn Ambassador Jakar doesn't know, plans to kill him. Londo and his ally, Lord Rifa, plan a speech that will undermine the Emperor and set their faction up to take over. Emperor thwarts them by having the most inconveniently timed heart attack in history. Needing to gain political juice in a hurry, Londo calls in his mysterious allies who sneak attack a Narn colony. The Centauri arrive later to take the credit. Sheridan stops Jakar from attempting to kill Londo in retaliation, but the damage is done. The Narn have declared war. Meanwhile, Garibaldi receives a surprise message from his old friend, Ambassador Sinclair, who's been up to much more than just ambassing. He's the head of a new, small army of humans in Minbari. 
the Rangers, preparing for a great war that is coming. Stay close to the Vorlon and watch out for shadows, he says. And that was The Coming of Shadows, which was the winner of the 1996 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. That was back before they split it into short form and long form. Beating Apollo 13, 12 Monkeys, Toy Story, and an episode of DS9. What do you guys think? Was this actually worthy of the diamond logo? I mean, worthy of a Hugo. (laughs) You know, I haven't actually seen... Let's see. I never saw Apollo 13. I did see 12 Monkeys and Toy Story, and I'm not a huge DS9 fan. I think it's worthy. I'll just say yes, I do. It was There was so much going on. It was well-written. It was super, super well-performed. I mean, I, I had tears in my eyes during one of those scenes between Londo and Jakar. So, yep, thumbs up from here. Yeah, agreed. It, I think absolutely it's definitely worthy of the Hugo. Um, interestingly enough, I think several previous episodes of Babylon 5 had been nominated for a Hugo the previous year, but wound up splitting up the vote, that sort of thing. So uh, as the nomination process was happening this time, whoever the powers that be were uh, guiding Babylon 5's entry were like, well, let's just, you know, let's focus on on the one that gets the most nominations and, and we'll focus on that. So that helped sort of coalesce. Um, I think a lot of people had expected Apollo 13 to take it because it had more nominations. But when push came to shove, uh, they took it by over 100 votes. So, Well, uh, obviously, our affection for this episode stems in part from the fact that we're fans of the entire series. So, uh, Stephen, this is an episode that is held in very high regard and won a Hugo. Did you think that it was all that? Oh, it was really, really good. Um, and especially coming on the heels of, uh, actually, you know what? I wouldn't say especially coming on the heels of, of Soulmates, um, which is right up there with TKO is my least favorite of the entire series. Um, <laughs> I, but I, I'm under, I'm on in the understanding though, that Soulmates actually originally aired not directly before The Coming of Shadows, but two weeks before, is that right? Uh, it was intended to air before The Coming of Shadows, but they had issues with uh, special effects and stuff. Well, I'm glad they did, because I find that everything that annoys me about characters like Londo um, and this season, Delenn, about which maybe I'll get into later, um, was amplified in Soulmates, and all of a sudden there was a hard course correction in this episode, and suddenly Londo's a great character again. Because I've always sort of compared Londo to being, you know, DS9's quark, basically. And that he's <laughs> sort of the Ferengi, and they have these strange, silly customs. And it's like three Andrea Martin as his mother came along in last week's episode. And there was this... It, it, was, it was terrible, let's face it. I did not like Soulmates one bit. Um, apart from the other... Um, the, the telepath uh, subplot that was going on there. And so I was kind of like mildly worried thinking oh good it's another londo episode but it was like this this is the relationship between londo and jakar and the kind of weight that i have been hoping and expecting uh to see for for some time so it was nice to see that the episode focused pretty much entirely on those two and their cultures and and their relationship and and yeah both both actors who played those parts really came through um, the guy who plays Dakar was was really good because he, he had quite the range going. But I, I quite liked Peter Jurassic in this because the, the whole time he's never quite sure what he's doing. And it, there's almost a hint of regret 
that he just he's going along with it because you know it's it's what he's sort of he wants the end goal, but he doesn't like how he's getting there. And so I like that line where, you know, I can sense Veer that you don't, you don't agree with me. And that for once I, you know, I'm, I'm with you on that one, but he still goes through with it. Yeah. He, uh, he starts out that way, but when the emperor keels over and they've got to make a move fast, it's Londo who takes the initiative. And he said, he said, pick a target. He says to nobody yeah. in particular, and there's a really important interchange after that, uh, and I'd like uh, Shannon or Erica to jump in on this. When Veer begs Londo not to do this, Londo says, I have no choice, and Veer says, yes, you do. Yeah, I, I think that this... That. Yeah. This entire episode, I think, if if you want to say there's sort of a theme to it, it is the theme of choice. Uh, we start right out from the very beginning, practically, when, you know, the emperor talks about how, you know, he never got to make a choice in his life until now. And, you know, by golly, he's got a choice and he's going to go through with it. You have Jakar making the choice to... Um, to go after Londo and, you know, getting talked out of it. Um, it, Of course, Londo's choice to um, do what he knows is going to start a new war, even though it probably he shouldn't. Uh, So the idea of choice and what happens as a result of those choices um, just kind of swarms through the whole episode. Absolutely. I, I like Veer as a character, just, you know, ever since he joined, he's really been sort of a background kind of a guy. He hasn't done or said a whole lot, but but the things he's been doing in the background have really uh, amused me. Um, there's there's a lot of good just sort of physical face acting from Stephen oh, first yeah. um, that's going on, even when he's not really a part of, of whatever is, is happening. And, and in this case, I love that he finally gets to the point where he's pushed so far that he just, he, he can't he can't keep quiet any longer so he he really just lets it all out there and i i really appreciate the way that their relationship has grown between londo and veer that veer feels comfortable that he can say this to londo and londo's okay with it i mean he completely ignores him but he lets it go and he doesn't fire him or anything like that um and it just it is it is heartbreaking to watch him take us to finally take a stand and have it really end up meaning pretty much nothing and I, I love the idea that he's like someday i'm gonna remind you of this and you can just tell by the look on londo's face that that's that's you know he he recognizes that that is a distinct possibility he he doesn't you know not only is he not upset with veer for talking back to him he you can see that he agrees with everything that Veer is saying, except that he's he feels I think he feels like he's come too far at this point, and that what's the point of choosing something different? What's the point of turning back now? Because the wheels are already in motion. So, so just let it let it happen the way it's going to. Yeah, even he, if it makes you uncomfortable. He tells. Yeah, I second. Yeah, I second everything about Veer and about Stephen First's performance in this one from. So many of those conversations between Londo and Rifa, where he's just sitting in the background like this ugly little disapproving gargoyle, just sort of glaring <laughs> at them both. And then to take the risk of insulting Rifa, Rifa, you know, hands his cup, expecting Veer to, you know, take yes. it like the lackey he is. And, you know, Veer just sort of looks at him. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that it could also have gotten him fired, but doesn't mm-hmm. before he launches into Londo and tries his best to convince him not to do this. Uh, it is heartbreaking. But Londo does. Uh, Londo comes up with the idea. He pitches it to Rifa. Veer tries to talk him out of it. Londo says, do I have to go to Morden myself? Veer says, I'm going to remind you of this. And Londo wraps up with, by this time tomorrow, we'll be at war 
may the great maker forgive me. I think the great maker would be more inclined to forgive you if you actually made a move not to do this in the first place. Just just a thought. Yeah. Just a, just a thought. <laughs> so that's the that's the Londo character development and it's a real it is the pivot point for his character, I think. Uh, up up to this point, you know, in his little dance with Morden, has he really up until this point has he really made a decision like this that is going to damn him? No, I think mostly he's just sort of um, said things offhandedly, and then Morden has taken that as a command. So it's not like it's not like Londo has gone to him in the past and said, "Please do this for me. Please do that." It's just sort of been like, "Oh, it would be nice if blah blah blah," and then it happens, and he's like, "Whoa," you know, Keanu Reeves style. Okay, <laughs> so you haven't heard it yet, Stephen, but uh, I. And actually, you really won't until our five-year voyage is completed and you get the chance to listen to some of the spoiler sections. But the second, the second we went into the spoilers on, um, on Soulmates, I, I lost my stuff about this whole uh, the Centauri are the Ferengi thing that your uh, spouse reported in to me about. Um, so, um, I, but again, I know that I know whenever I hear about this blasphemy that you speak, I know that the coming of shadows is coming and all this other stuff. You're nine episodes into the second season. How do you feel about the Centauri as far as the way they were played up to where they've gotten to now? Did they uh, have, have the showrunners done a good job of uh, sort of surprising you with where they were going or did they sell the, did they sell the goofy, um, empire in decline stuff too much um they sold they i they sold the goofiness maybe a little too much i think there's you know whenever there's a chance for comic relief it's been it's been londo let's face it you know he's sort of been the the fault the go-to guy whatever there's a, a jokey subplot needed or something like like you know the card playing one when he's teaching um uh what's his name linear uh, linear uh you know that sort of thing that so it it's i think it's a, it's a, it's either way it's pretty it's a tale of extremes kind of where it's either he's londo's completely jokey or he's starting an interplanetary war you know there's no real in between when it comes to him um i like it much better when he's starting interplanetary wars because it means he has something to do <laughs> it isn't just sort of serving the b plot uh for the episode um and jakar i thought i thought was interesting because jakar is always kind of you know, sort of flamboyant and out there already, um, and I, I. But I never, because of that, I never really get the impression that he is the one that has been oppressed for a hundred years. He and his people, because he's so prim and proper, whereas Londo is not. I could expect Londo to be the one who is being suppressed all this, all these years, and Jakar to be in the position of power. But the fact that it's 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 swapped um, doesn't really. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't seem that way to me. I think it would. It'd be if they had more characters, more Centauri and more Minbari. Um, I got that right. And Narn. Right? No, Narn. Narn. That's what I meant. More Narn. More Narn and more Centauri. I think perhaps you're hearing their um, experiences and perspectives on on the Hundred Years' War. I think it would be a little more different than having these two ambassadors sort of duke it out on the sidelines. Yeah. At the end of the spoiler section uh, last time around, I encouraged people to watch 
the very first episode of the series, uh, Midnight on the Firing Line, again, because it really is the mirror image of the coming of shadows, right down to the unprovoked attack by one side against the other, to the ambassador distraught over this and wanting to kill the other and being talked out of it by one of the Earth Force personnel. Um, Garibaldi talks Lando out of trying to kill Jakar in the first episode. This time it's Sheridan trying to talk Jakar out of going after Lando. So, yeah, for the bulk of this series, all the way up to uh, Chrysalis, the Narns have been the heavies. It all is set up in that first episode with Jakar's outrage and his grievances against the against the Centauri that moment when he's just screaming in the hallway that don't you see they're doing it again and then slumps down against the wall we've never seen him like this before never yeah he's he's almost broken by this which I think is is kind of amazing and you know Stephen's comment about them sort of seeming reversed as far as the positions of their their planets and their cultures. I think to me it works really well because Centauri Prime or is or was on the decline. They had been this strong strong empire that had you know conquered Narn, and at this point Narn has been free for I don't know if they've ever exactly told us how long, um, but not long enough for. <laughs> Not long enough for for them to get over it and sort of sort of forget about it even a little bit. So, so you do see Londo at the beginning as sort of this cowed character who doesn't seem to have a whole heck of a lot of backbone and really is the comic relief a lot of the time. And then on the other hand, you have Jakar, who is part of this culture who has just thrown off the shackles of of slavery and oppression, and they you know is trying to take back not only their planet but other planets and and listening posts and colonies and that sort of thing so i like him being the sort of more flamboyant in your face kind of energetic guy because that's a reflection of this you know it's not exactly a young culture but it's young in terms of of their power they haven't had this much power for a long time and and i like that londo is so so spineless and cowed at the beginning and really is kind of just the, the butt of the jokes because, you know, if you've been the butt of the jokes for so long and suddenly you have the opportunity to to reach out for this brass ring of power, that I think that, that setting him up as this buffoonish, you know, kind of silly figure for, for so long and, and making it clear that other people see him that way uh, really makes his transition make more sense and also be a little bit sadder because he just he wants to get away from that he doesn't want to be the butt of the jokes anymore he wants to to bring himself and his world back to the place that they were back to the stars as he claims the emperor tells him (laughs) yeah so it works uh one other thought is that we were set up to believe that the narn are the klingons the narn are the bad guys and the (laughs) centauri are the jokes the centauri are the ferengi i guess (laughs) Um, and so that sort of, that sort of gets turned on its head in this episode. We're also expected to see that the government of Centauri Prime of the Centauri Republic is corrupt, is, well, not corrupt so much as just impotent, indolent. Mm -hmm. And we meet the emperor and he turns out to be a sweetheart. Mm -hmm. He's so great. (laughs) What's up with that, Shannon? 
I think he's an absolutely marvelous character. Um, I also give huge props to uh, the actor, uh, Turin Bay, uh, who apparently auditioned for um, Elric, the Technomage, um, from uh, several episodes ago. And they decided he just wasn't menacing enough. Um, but they liked him so much that Straczynski actually wrote the Centauri Emperor uh, with him in mind. To, to get him back and get him into a role. Um, and he apparently made himself such so many friends on set while he was there that, uh, that actor after actor was coming up to Straczynski saying, how could you kill him off so quickly? How could you not let this sweet man come back? Um, as, and he will actually, the actor will be back under alien makeup in a later season uh, to come. <laughs> so he did get to come back. But he performs this character so well. This, you know, you know, this gentleman who, this philosopher, you know, the, the, this kind man who does not appear to, that he would have ever wanted the war. I think it ended before he took office, if I remember a couple of references correctly. For him, as he said, he's been going with the flow all his life, just sort of following policy, following what others have been telling him until he gets to this point where he's, you know, he's almost at the end of his life. Um, and he's going to, you know, by golly, he's going to do something that makes a difference. It's it's an it's a really great character. Um, there's a whole lot packed into the limited time that we get him. Yeah, as much as we sometimes diss the uh, the casting of, of extras and, and guest characters on this show, this is this is just a coup. And I didn't know I did not know that about him trying out for Elric and, and JMS wanting to bring him back. But it makes perfect sense because he he is the emperor. He fits into the character. I don't see the strings. I don't see him acting. Uh, he's just wonderful. And I too was just really really sad when he was killed off at the end. Just another another piece of the puzzle that makes this episode tug at my heartstrings so much. He's well cast, the Prime Minister's well cast, and Lord Rifa. Love to hate him. <laughs> Lord, love to hate William Forward as Lord Rifa. I just want to say that I love the, the Emperor too. Uh, and I, I love how it's very symbolic that he doesn't wear the headdress anymore. He doesn't have his hair like that anymore. It's almost like he's cast off sort of the, you know, the symbols of what a centauri stands for by not having his hair like that anymore he's sort of like tired with you know what it means to be that way um and it is it is is sad and i i quite enjoy the way his his heart attack was shot though slow motion walk towards the camera is very guy ritchie-esque i thought from janet greek uh one of my favorite directors again showing up for this which is nice to see and it was sad but anytime you see an elderly um <laughs> head of state at the beginning of an episode it's uh it's very rare that they make it to the end of an episode <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i totally agree with you Stephen, about some of those shots not just the the slow motion and sort of the building of the drama, but also the fact that several pivotal moments in that sequence, there's zero dialogue, you know, yeah. and you, you think a writer like JMS would, would want to, to write stuff, would want the characters saying stuff, but no, he's got the bravery to just let the scene tell the story. And this time in particular, I noticed that. Yeah, especially that bit when um, Franklin gets the call and uh, leaves oh, yeah. the reception after uh, the emperor falls. And yeah, that's uh, the only sound you get is the added uh, Twitter on his hand hand communicator, uh, which you wouldn't have heard. You wouldn't have heard if you couldn't hear the do the conversation or the foley or anything like that. But but yeah, he just leaves in a hurry and uh, Sheridan watches as he goes. And you know that this is bad news. Speaking of Sheridan, he doesn't have a whole lot to do in this episode. 
he um, confronts Jakar at the end, and he confronts Jakar at the beginning. And I like this scene because we'll we'll get to uh, Ambassador Sinclair in a bit, but Sheridan still knew at this, and he handles Jakar in just totally the wrong way, wouldn't you say? It's uh, it's almost naive. The Emperor's coming. It's going to be great. I suggest you, if you can't handle this, stick your fingers in your ears. That's really going to win over the Narn ambassador. <laughs> Um, he's like this is me this is what i keep saying he's like he's the wide-eyed puppy he's so enthusiastic i I think that maybe he didn't quite see past the idea that something great could come of this to recognize the darkness that is standing right in front of him i think he missed it i don't know i kind of i kind of sort of liked that approach I, i i had more of the feeling that you know sheridan Maybe had already tried a few times to try and communicate with, you know, Londo and Jakar both to try to get them to talk peace. And now he's going to try a blunt instrument. You know, it's like, you know, is this is what it's going to take to get your attention, Jakar. Um, so I liked it. I, I thought it was in character. Yes. You know, Sheridan is, you know, much more blunt than maybe Sinclair would have been in the same position, but still after the same goal, playing, encouraging Jakar over and over at several different times to take the long view, you know, try not to react immediately, but try to do something about this. Um, and of course, uh, we get another really good bit of um, how the Sheridan strategy works that is a bit Sinclair-like at the end when um, he bluffs Londo into, uh, but with the threat of observers to um, help get the Narn back to their home world and away from Centauri oppression. Well, all I'm saying is that if that had been Sinclair in that office instead of Sheridan, he would have had uh, Garibaldi checking Jakar for knives on the way into the reception. I'm just saying. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought that was kind you know, given how Jakar was reacting towards that, yeah, just come along, it'll be fine. You're an ambassador, you're trustworthy, you know, despite the fact that he'd basically given his last will and testament and was going to be a uh, assassin terrorist um, at this at this event. You know, I think he kind of gets the benefit of the doubt uh, a little too often sometimes. I, I hope that perhaps there will be increased security between the two from from now on. Okay, so once the poor, uh, I was just thinking, once the poor security guards recover in med lab, there was some great stunt work. There was massively great stunt work in that scene. That one bit where stunt stunt double is going to be feeling that for a couple. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, What about the dream? Uh, In Midnight on the Firing Line, again, right from the beginning, uh, we're sort of discounting the gathering a little bit, but right from the beginning of this series. Londo told us and told Sinclair that he knew how he was going to die. 20 years from no, from then, he was going to die with his hands wrapped around Jakar's throat and vice versa. Um, we get to see that dream in this episode. Uh, what do you all think of that? Was that Jakar strangling Londo in the dream sequence? Yep. Yep. It was. Yeah, he okay, was... I- yeah. Honestly, couldn't tell he, who that was because he yeah, had it was like supposed a to be him because, across him or something. Yeah, but. well, um, Londo and he were both aged up, and I think the aging up of Narn makeup makes it, you know, since it's mostly mask, mostly prosthetics, makes it harder to tell that it's the same person under there. But it is him, uh-huh. and he has like a, a patch over one eye, which makes it even right. harder to identify him, but it is definitely Jakar. Okay, well, I didn't get that, so that makes more sense. I thought, oh, so Londo's going to die on the throne getting strangled by a nameless, um, what looks to be a, uh, a Narn. Okay. Yeah, but, but this is, we, we finally, 
we finally get the visual of what Londo described back then. Um, although there's more stuff in this particular dream. We have um, that image of a hand reaching out of the sun, which mm-hmm. I believe is referenced by the Technomage. Yeah, I see a is great right? hand reaching out of the stars. So yeah. we get that little hint. Um, and we also get Londo you know, standing and looking up at these spider crabs that have been showing up, um, flying in the atmosphere of a planet that we assume is Centauri Prime. We don't know for sure. Um, But yeah, there's all kinds of images being thrown at us um, all at once that, you know, are obviously pointing to things in the future. um, And we're going to have to see what happens. Oh, I know. If this was Avengers um, Age of Ultron, this would be foreshadowing like three or four different movies to come in the next two or three years. <laughs> um, yeah. Steven, since the rest of us know the series, uh, were you surprised to see Alondo on the throne? Yeah, I think uh, I think Londo was probably surprised when he saw himself in the dream, too, because he said he didn't want to be he didn't want to be emperor. Um, later on, perhaps because he saw what was going to happen to him, uh, that he was upset about that. But I don't know. It's a dream sequence. Dreams change, so I never, I never take dream sequences too, uh, too literally. So I'm, I'm, I wasn't that surprised. I just sort of assumed it was sort of his, you know, his aspirations at play there, as opposed to predicting the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that dream once you're safely away. Um, but figured you would. Yeah, that's it's what we it, it's what we do. Uh, two words from Kosh. In fire. And <laughs> in, in answer in, in answer to the poor the poor the poor emperor he just wanted to see a Vorlon and and and, and the Vorlon shows up and he tells him something he was, really he was right. Go he's, go ahead. Sorry, he was he was right there. I just was, I reacted at the speed. He was there. Like I really wanted to see a Vorlon. He sort of blinks and he's right there. As if just oh you know I I thought for a second that it was was it the Vorlon doing that or did uh, did the Doctor have more um, pull with him? Sort of oh he wants to see a Vorlon. You know snapped his fingers, brought him in or something like that. He he was basically at his beck and call. I was impressed by that. And this is Kosh. Kosh goes yeah. where Kosh goes. <laughs> That's true. And I was expecting him to say in confusion, to be honest, but he said in fire, uh, which is probably a little more on the nose and uh, intriguing than in confusion. But um, that's what I was expecting him to say. <laughs> I like the ambiguity of that. Well, I mean, it's a Kosh line. It's, of course, it's going to be surrounded by and full of ambiguity. There's there's nothing else when it comes to Vorlons. But but just the fact that, you know, how how will it end? Are, what are we what are we talking about? What specifically did, did he mean? Was he talking about the Narn um, and Centauri conflict? Was he just talking about Centauri it, itself? Was he talking about something closer to home? Who knows? Who knows? But apparently Kosh did. Apparently so. (laughs) Guess what, Erica? We've got a Sinclair check. (laughs) We do. (laughs) I've been missing these. I've been missing these. Nine episodes into the season, and we have the surprise reveal of uh, Michael O'Hare as Jeffrey Sinclair back. And it would not have been a surprise if I hadn't warned you, Stephen, that uh, the (laughs) <laughs> the chapter titles. Yep. Chapter five is titled Sinclair's Message. And I'm just hit, hitting my head over my desk and then immediately messaging the mm-hmm. two of you to make sure. Yeah, that... and it's a great big close up on his face on the little picture on the <laughs> DVD. So I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh. Thank you, Chip, for warning us, uh, because that would have been a real bummer to have that spoiled, I think. So uh, we had last time on in Soulmates, we had that great line from Jakar about how unprecedented it would be for a commander to be whisked away from the station and sent off to some other world or something like that. But 
the Sheridan character has had time to get established. We're familiar with him now. He feels like the star of the show, even though he doesn't have that much to do in this episode, and rightly so. This is Londo and Shakar's story. Uh, but how do we feel about the return of Sinclair uh, and what he says about his army of rangers and things like that portends? I found it perfectly timed because it was it, to me, it just felt because we spent so much time with that character. It felt like it had a lot of weight to have him reappear. It was it was extra mysterious and it just meant more than I think it would have been if, if we would have had some random character appear to Garibaldi and say, hey, old friend, and and have to inform us as the audience that this is somebody that Garibaldi has known for a long time. So he trusts him like that would have been a fine, nice thing. But the fact that we know this character and we trust him because we kind of, you know, to a certain extent lived inside his head for a season and got to know him as a character, uh, it it felt bigger and more momentous. So I, I liked it. And you know what? I think that uh, the secret to getting me to like Michael O'Hare is to just put him on a screen and have him not move too much and <laughs> not have him actually interact with anybody else. Just have him talk to the camera. Um, yeah. So it wor- that worked for me. Uh, it worked for me as well. Um, it, it times it, it segues all together very well in uh, the fact that just as the Narn and Centauri are suddenly, you know, at each other's throats because of this unknown third race that's been messing with Londo and pushing to try and start something. And lo and behold, here we have the beginnings of a force to try and help combat this. Um, we don't know much about them yet. We just know that they're there and that they're on uh, Garibaldi's side. They're on the side of Babylon 5. Uh, they are, you know, working for peace, but you know, ready to try and fight. Right now, they're just information gathering, but you get the sense that they are ready to step up if they're needed. So it fits. Um, it fits well. Stephen. Yeah, I was surprised. I'm really glad that you um, uh, warned us about that one there, Chip, because I do. I like to watch things uh, in their pristine nature and not being spoiled by anything at all. So it was a genuine surprise when he turned up. I have to admit, it was it was a little bit sad. Uh, I I know that. Michael O'Hare um, had some health issues, I think, which is why he left the show early. And he d- he didn't seem altogether in that clip. And it, it sadly reminded me of, you know, him sort of looking slightly off camera, almost probably reading his lines off a cue card or something. It reminded me of William Hartnell in The, t- in the Three Doctors in 1973. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, this is kind of sad that he's, he's resorted to do this. But what it, what it did, though, honestly, is what it did. And, it, and it, this ties into a point that I've wanted to make uh, for a while about season two, if you'll allow me. Um, Please, feel free. Is that ever since Sinclair left uh, the show, I realized how tied to Sinclair the character of Delenn has been and how completely sidelined Delenn has been in season two which has been a great disappointment to me because they made such a big thing about her chrysalis into this sort of, you know, new evolution um, of the Minbari. And then, you know, she's been, she hasn't been central to any of the episodes. And the most recent insult is her roaring, worrying about her hair last week. And I just thought <laughs> this is just such, such a decline of importance for this once central character. And, and all of a sudden, her importance is brought back into the spotlight at the very last scene when she is the other one who gets the message from Sinclair as well. And I just feel that that 
you know, as long as Sinclair is tied to the plot somehow, then so is Delenn. But if if not, then she's going to sort of just carry on being on the station. I I I have to wonder if you know. I'm cer- I'm certain it wasn't planned that uh, Michael O'Hare was going to leave after season one, and I'm just wondering if this is JMS and the writing team sort of scrambling to. You know, uh, I, I think that Delenn probably might have had a, a a larger part to play in season two, and but because of the connection with with Sinclair, I think that's sort of been sidelined for the time being. You know, that's an interesting thought. Um, I'll also add to that, um, and this sort of relates to some of your uh, concerns that have been expressed by proxy about Talia. When you've got a single character who is so tightly identified with a plot thread and you're going to pay attention to other plot threads those characters just disappear they've got nothing to do before this we had three solid episodes of telepath stuff psychor intrigue and things like that and now talia's got something to do and she's in the thick of it and she's all over the place we we really haven't had any serious minbari stuff going on in this first third of the season, except for when she came out of the chrysalis, right? And the uh, stuff with uh, Sheridan in a previous episode. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's an ensemble cast. And there's times when this part of the ensemble is being featured and then that part of the ensemble is being featured. So, um, yeah, it... Yeah, sometimes it's you just have to sort of take the long view if, you know, like Chip said in our previous episode, every character is somebody's whoopee. And, you know, if you're waiting and waiting for that favorite character to show up, you've got to ride with it until that character's plot line comes back. Um, or I, until the character gets written now. If, uh, but that's, Well, you know. yes, at, at times <laughs> um, that happens. Um, but I did like Delenn's, you know, even though she didn't appear much in this episode, the few times she did, I felt like there was sort of a, it was kind of like a signpost sort of that, you know, that she's sort of starting to get back into things um, because she's the one who notices that Jakar is kind of acting funny there. And, you know, she's thinking, she's thinking she may need to go over and talk to him and maybe distract him if he's about to do something foolish like i don't know yell down the ambassador during his speech uh and of course jakar takes off um and then again at the end we find out that she is the other person who is aware of the presence of the rangers so um if the rangers are going to become a big thing then apparently delenn's going to be involved in that that is true and you know one thing that i just that just occurred to me thinking about it now is that yeah you do have talia free episodes and delenn free episodes and stuff and it it seems you know, their 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 presence is, is completely missed because you don't get anything from them. I think we don't notice that as much from, you know, when we have an episode that doesn't have much Sheridan or much Garibaldi or Ivanova, we often still see them because Babylon 5, the station itself, is sort of the, the core, the center of this, this whole show, and that's where it's all happening, and they are in charge of the station. So whatever exciting big-time thing is going on on the station, it is necessarily going to have to involve one or some of the command staff so we get to see you know a lot more of the uh, two scenes with with dr franklin or you know one scene with garibaldi so they're kept in your in your mind whereas if you've got a telepath heavy story there's no reason for delenn to necessarily come into that or or londo or jakar so i think that the the ambassadors the telepaths sort of the external characters who aren't part of earth force are necessarily going to end up being um, you know, having more large gaps than we get with our command staff. And this episode in particular, I mean, Bruce Boxleitner's the star of the show. 
he doesn't have much to do. He this is, you know, uh, Andreas Katsoulis and Peter Jurisic do all of the heavy lifting for this thing because it is rightly their story. But but Sheridan is there because he he needs to be as the captain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm noticing the big difference. I mean, not to compare it to Star Trek or anything like that, but the big difference between Babylon Five and Star Trek is, I think the 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 leader of the space station slash ship has a much less prominent role to play than than perhaps Star Trek. In a way, though, he almost kind of reminds me of of Benjamin Sisko in Deep Space Nine. He was sort of stuck behind a desk for for three or four years in that show before they finally let him loose onto a, onto a starship, and then he became a, a much more interesting character because he had more to do. I don't know if that's going to happen with this, but um, but I do look forward to having to seeing Sheridan have more to do because I think he has sort of just sort of been there as the guy, not really calling the shots. Not even calling the shots. That one episode where he had to like fight for his right to have a, a slightly larger um, apartment than everyone else. It was kind of <laughs> emblematic of his uh, his his sort of lack of power that he actually has on that station. Yeah. So at the end of this episode, the Narn and the Centauri are at war, and it feels like a different show to me. That, that's been a bit of a running theme for me. It feels like Babylon 5 now. No, now it really feels like Babylon 5. No, now it feels like Babylon 5. <laughs> we'll talk about going forward in the spoiler section. But as far as resetting the show, do you think that this actually does reset the premise of the show? Does it feel like a different show now? You know, I think that you've said it so many times simply because we keep having these peaks and valleys as far as the the arc goes. You get something that's really exciting happening like at the very beginning of the season, the first three episodes. And then, you know, then you've got something like Soulmates, which, as Stephen will hear, I liked a lot more than he did. But I admit mm-hmm. that it's 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 very light and very kind of throwaway when it comes to the more heavy stuff. So, so yeah, it does feel like something has changed and, and we've reset something. But if I were watching this for the first time, I don't know if I would be convinced convinced that it was going to stay that way. I mean, maybe maybe I would be a little bit more since this is two of our, you know, biggest races going to war against each other. That seems to be the kind of thing that I would hope they wouldn't uh, wouldn't just, you know, tie up in a neat bow in the next episode, but you, you never know. I guess I I I'm not convinced yet that it is uh, completely shifted gears. It does feel like the rising action, you know, in in the the novel metaphor. You know, this is probably the point where you want to just keep reading, even though it's after midnight, because, you know, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen next? Yeah, to me, this uh, it, it feels like it would be very hard for them to go back to an episode like um, Soulmates or something as frivolous, you know, since uh, there, you know, there's two ambassadors here uh, who are representing cultures at war right now. So, uh, but I, I know that how TV was made back then. I mean, they had 22 episodes and sometimes you had filler episodes and sometimes you had episodes that, that really advanced the core storyline of the thing. And I imagine that we'll still get the odd filler episode here and there, but I don't know how easy it's going to be you know how easy is it going to be for jakar to have a silly story now when when he his government has declared war and everything yeah i'm intrigued i'm really intrigued now to see what happens next with this show last question for the group favorite scene in this episode or 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 most compelling scene I, I know what that one is, and it's it's the scene that just gets me every time, the one that at the very start of this podcast I mentioned that brings tears to my eyes, and that is the scene where Lando has already sort of pulled the trigger to to, to completely destroy the, uh, the Narn colony, 
and uh, Jakar does not know about it yet. In fact, Jakar has just spoken to Dr. Franklin and learned that the Centauri ambassador was going to apologize. And his, you know, he's completely shifting his view of the Centauri as an entire race, as a people. And he has hope for the future. And it's just, it's beautiful to, to see that in him. And he is, he's buying Londo a drink. And, you know, patting him on the back. And you've got this amazing performance from Andreas Katsilas, who is just jubilant. And it's it's so wonderful. And then on the other side of the screen, you've got Londo and Peter Jurisic just looking ashen-faced because he knows what he's just done. And he, you know, he, I can almost picture him picturing Veer in his head saying, I told you so. Like, if he wouldn't have done this, maybe there would have been a great sea change and things would have gone completely differently. And, you know, even if that's not what he was aiming for, just the fact that that he can see this joy in a person who is not generally very joyful, um, he's, he, it just hits him so hard. And it hits me that hard, too. That was that was when I started getting misty because it was it was so strongly portrayed on both sides of that scene. And they were both going in completely different directions. And I just felt like my heart was ripped apart in between the two. Yeah, I have to jump in and, and, and echo that because it just it just represents how this whole war it it's it's great storytelling and that it wasn't like, Oh, we're angry. Yes. We're also angry. Well, now we're at war. The whole war sort of happens almost by mistake. You know, there's a series of mistakes that the emperor, it feels differently about what the, um, the Centauri should do. And, 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 you know, had, um, Jakar met up with the emperor like an hour or two before, um, the whole war could have been avoided and he could have bought Londo a drink and Londo before Londo even called the shots to, to tell Space Mob guy to send uh, the space crabs over to start a war. And that's what makes it so tragic and that's what probably makes it so compelling is that this whole thing happened by, by just communication errors, you know, and oftentimes that's how the great, I mean, Crikey, the world almost went into a meltdown in October of 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis under uh, similar circumstances. So it's um, it's really interesting to see the art imitating life that way. Yeah, I definitely thoroughly appreciate that episode, uh, that scene in the episode. Uh, but I also really like when Franklin goes to tell Jakar. Uh, that scene also really compels me because you've got um, Jakar who was just a minute ago ranting to his um, colleague in uh, in the Kari um, that governed the Narn homeworld, how close he was. And, you know, you get the little comic bump of, you know, hey, maybe he's recovering and I'll still have a chance. And then you've got Franklin, of all people, to, to be the messenger because there's no one else available to the emperor that he trusts to actually see the message getting through. And, you know, Franklin just lays it out. He was going to apologize. He was going to stand next to Anarn and tell the world that they were wrong. And just the realization as Jakar slowly comes to understand how close if, you know, if the emperor had not had the heart attack and, and he had gone after him and tried to kill him, that, you know, this possibility would never have existed and then it goes right into the scene with him and Londo, just those two together that it's like it encompasses in a couple of scenes all the different facets we see from Jakar in the whole episode. Ouch. God. <laughs> Dropping the mic, Shannon. Dropping the mic. And another stinger for the end of the podcast is born. Yeah. Don't you dare. <laughs> no, not, do it, do not it. again. Oh, I, I agree with both of the things, uh, both of the scenes that have been put forward 
but I will say that you are all wrong, and the best scene is with uh, Londo and Veer when Veer tries to talk Londo out of it, and pretty much puts forward what I believe to be the mission statement of the TV show. You always have a choice. You know, I can't argue with any of these. these no. This is a, an episode full of great scenes, and it's just, it's an embarrassment of riches, really. So, so yay for all of it. Really, yeah. uh, really worthy of a Hugo, wouldn't you say? I mean, uh, and, 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 you know, Hugos don't speak for the entirety of science fiction fandom, but, uh, but this, this, this was a really, really good episode. Yeah. Also, why was Apollo 13 nominated for that? There's no science fiction in there. It just happens to take place in space. Well, there are science fiction. And it's science. And, space, and it's fictionalized. And those, those people were not the actual people who were in space. Therefore, it's fiction. <laughs> I suppose so. By the strict letter the people, of the law, yes. The people making the nominations nominated it. <laughs> uh, and just a couple of years ago, an acceptance speech for a Hugo was nominated for a Hugo for a dramatic presentation short form. So it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's fluid. It's very fluid. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness, Stephen! It has been a pleasure to have you with us uh, as we talk about the coming of shadows. Uh, I hope that you will uh, continue with us as you watch the next episode of Babylon 5, which is Grow Pose, featuring uh, Paul Winfield, who 13 years prior had been Captain Terrell in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. That'll be next time. Until then, um, you can comment about The Coming of Shadows on our spoiler and spoiler-free threads at b5audioguide.com. On Twitter and Tumblr, if you look for B5 Audio Guide, we're there. With that, we say a fond farewell to Stephen, and we step into a jump gate. From here on out, spoilers for the future of Babylon 5. And we've come out of the jump gate into neutral territory, or something like that, anyway. I don't know that there's a whole lot that we need to say in the spoiler section, because we, we would basically be talking about the next three years of Babylon 5. Um, so is there anything in here that we want to take a look at that is especially pertinent, that especially as, to mix our metaphors, a sign or portent to the future of this season? A couple of things that hit me. Um, one is with Jakar's character and sort of his continued underlying spirituality. Um, he talks in when he's leaving his will about leaving his copy of the Book of Jaquan to Natoth in the hopes that it will enlighten her. And then after he's trashed his room and um, Sheridan comes to try and get him to come to the council chamber, he's just sort of sitting there kind of rocking back and forth and holding that book like it's his teddy bear. Um that sort of made me think of how, you know, he's going to wind up um, not too far down the road with his revelation of, you know, not just the Narn, but everybody needs to be taken into account um, in his spiritual wor spiritual worldview. Uh, so that resonated with me. Um, and the other thing which we can talk about um, kind of together, I guess, um, is, of course, some of the dream sequences in Londo's dream. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Erica, how about you? Um, the one thing that jumped out at me, and I kind of mentioned this a little bit in the pre-spoiler section, was uh, was Kosh's line, you know, how will it end? In fire. And 
I don't know that I've ever fully, completely figured out exactly what Kosh is talking about. I mean, is he just talking about Babylon 5 itself because the space station, you know, it ends in fire and they blow it up at the end? Or, you know, is it, well, the, you know, the firefight between the two races? I, I'm not sure if you guys have thoughts on that. Well, I noticed that when I was looking, trying to place it exactly, the episode title for the episode where um, the younger races finally convince the Shadows and the Vorlons and all the first ones to just go away and leave us alone is titled Into the Fire. So oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that that was what made me think that, that um, Kosh was referring to, you know, the coming clash between, you know, the first ones all trying to, or these two races trying to mess with all of the younger racers and how it's all going to blow up in their faces. There's another um, interpretation that you could work in there, which is, uh, you know, the future of Centauri Prime, which is not a good future. It's going to get uh, ruined by the shadows and by the Drak. And I don't, you know, they could always rebuild, but in the timeline of the, in, in the timeline of the TV series, you know, pretty much everything that we see of Centauri Prime is bad. So I think that um, who knows? Uh, Emperor, the emperor may have been talking about asking about how will my civilization end? <laughs> Not well. Mm-hmm. It's it's all in fire. It, yeah. You know, actually. Um, side note: my uh, when I was a, a youngster, shortly out of college, I was trying to start a band with some of my roommates, and I think I can't remember if we. Uh, I had I tossed around the uh, idea of end in fire as the uh, as the band name because you know I was super hardcore back then um but they didn't go for it so we actually ended up with in valen's name and the, the band never went anywhere but we had the best title ever oh lovely <laughs> nice um and I, actually i guess that's something else that you know we can talk about for a few minutes we finally have the first time that the enemy is called the shadows although the actual connection i think it takes a few episodes still uh but with sinclair telling um Garibaldi to watch out for shadows. Um, and of course, we have the introduction of the Rangers, and that's going to become huge, um, you know, especially once Marcus arrives on the station and we've got uh, a recurring character representing them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that dream uh, before we pack things up. Um, any, any of the specific imagery? Um, one thing that I noted is that, you know, obviously Londo is wearing the basically the same costume that he's been wearing for a while. Um, the purple coats most significantly. And of course, a few episodes down the road, he gets a wardrobe makeover to make him look more dark, more threatening and all that stuff. By the time we get up to season four and Morden's bringing the shadows to Centauri Prime, we've got to get back to this scene in the dream. But Londo's been wearing the dark coat all this time. So they have a, they have a scene where that lovely uh, future prime minister uh, regent, uh, that nuts dude says, oh, it's off to be cleaned. And Londo reaches into the cabinet and pulls on his purple (laughs) coat from this scene again, just to make it all match up. They couldn't do that for, they couldn't do that for Delenn's sleeve, but they do that for the coat. Yeah, it seems like the sleeve would have been easier. Except that the sleeve didn't look all that good. I don't know. Uh, That that original sleeve in Babylon Squared, it was kind of a crappy sleeve. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm offended. (laughs) (sighs) The only other thing that I, I 
was just thinking of when we were wa- watching the episode was was how there is now going to be a new emperor on the throne, the nephew or whatever. And, and that is mm-hmm. something that I am both looking forward to and dreading as far as watching because Emperor Cartaja is one of the the villains, the television villains that <laughs> fills me with the most dread. He's just like his madness is mm-hmm. so scary. It chills me. It is just it is chilling. So I'm looking forward to getting to it because I think it's a great performance and a kind of a great storyline. But boy, does it make me uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting how we get we keep getting little bits of information piling up on each other as the series goes on. Episode one, season one, Jakar and Londo, the dream of them being at each other's throat. We get a little more information this time around that Londo's actually emperor when it happens. Uh, and somewhere and, along the line, Jakar's lost an eye. Yeah. And so. then midway through season three, when we get the other half of Babylon Squared, War Without End, we have the flash forward and we find out that Jakar was trying to do a mercy killing because they were friends and because Londo was under the control of a Drock Keeper. You know, all this stuff, you know, just keeps building and building. We learn more as we go on. Oh, goodness. There was another example of that uh, that comes from this episode, and it has just flitted away from me. Well, we get the mention from Rifa about, you know, things have settled down and, you know, we've got the nephew and, you know, he, he thinks like we do. It's like, um, and well, we find out that, you know, Cartagena gets to the point where when, you know, he decides that Londo and Rifa's feud that develops uh, later on is causing problems and, you know, says that, you know, this is causing problems. And so Londo makes the point of setting Rifa up and uh, getting him killed. And Cartage is happy with that because, hey, it's solved. Just like you said, um, incredible villain. And thank you, Shannon. You saved me because that was the original reason that I started on that little tirade in the first place was because, again, we we get the impression as a result of this episode that the emperor's nephew is just, yeah, it's just a puppet. And it's not until we meet him that, no, he's nuts. He's he's a sadistic, insane psychopath. yeah, it takes a little while, though. Like, the first impression is he's he's indeed that figurehead. He's just, a, you know, flitting about, enjoying his power. He cuts his hair so he can hide among his people and walk around. And and then and, and then you slowly, it builds to just what a maniac he is. And just what the Centauri have done to themselves with, with, all, of, with all of these plots. This is why I love Babylon 5. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, anything else before we move on to Gropos? <laughs> what, what Stephen well, had to say about, you know, I guess we're going to get more high points than low points from here on out. and Not entirely. This is not a Gropos. I have a, Gropo- I have a fondness for Gropos. Um, yeah, isn't that the really one with like Franklin it. and his dad? Yeah, it's not awful, but so, it's got issues. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, but and it's, it's, not, it's not, a not a total momentous. loss. Uh, uh, but you know, the the moment the moment in Babylon Five that I'm really maybe not looking forward to, but I'm most impressed by in light of this episode, after the big change in Jakar's fortunes and as the beginning of the war ramps up, I flashed forward all the way to Severed Dreams, and when the station gets invaded by a breaching pod. And mm-hmm. Narns are throwing themselves bodily into the firefight to protect the station. You know, mm-hmm. this yep. show is changing and it's not going to 
This may not be the show that uh, Stephen thought he was watching a year ago. It's going to be a completely different show next year. And that is, as we said, you know, the evolution of a story arc. Yep. Indeed. Flappy hands of joy. <laughs> All over. Already already demonstrated. Yep. And <laughs> and with that, uh, we I hand the baton over to Erica for Grow Pose and... Thank you for listening and thank you for watching and thank you for being with us and we'll see you next time. But for now, this is Chip and Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And you have been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Babylon 5.